Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak today um, on this really important topic. Uh, I know that many others on this panel and, and across the couple of days are, are uh, illustrious academics uh, who have um, significant academic credentials. I don't have those, um, but I am coming from a more practitioner perspective, um, looking at the implementation um, of, of some of the concerns and um, principles of free speech uh, within Muslim communities across the UK. So I'm coming from, from that perspective, from a practitioner perspective, and I'm going to really be, be talking about really around this idea that free speech isn't really free specifically for Muslims and, and talking in a British context. I'm going to talk about four main areas. Um, firstly, the, the concerns, actually concerns is probably too, too strong a word, but the, the different views about, about free speech within Muslim communities in the UK. Um, secondly, one of the key inconsistencies that is really prevalent and impactful on Muslim communities in this country, and, and that's that's the prevalent legislation which was touched on by Professor Gold earlier. Um, I'll spend the majority of my time on Islamophobia and its impact on Muslims' free speech, and I'll, I'll talk about the definition, um, inconsistencies in the approach, and the fact that one of the biggest concerns about Muslims, according to many polls, is Islamophobia, and that yet it is being used as a uh, free speech is used um, to almost undermine the fight against it. And we'll talk about that in more detail and then the way forward. So uh, hopefully that's a useful structure for what we're going to do. And I'll I'll, I'll, keep, I'll try my best to keep to 20 minutes um, and, and finish just after one o'clock. So in terms of the concerns of Muslim communities, I'd like to summarize them. And this is not a fair summary and this is not based on polling, but this is my um, anecdotal plus um, hopefully uh, expertise driven um, uh, summary of what I see as the issues that are laid when it comes to free speech and when it comes to Muslim communities. On the one hand, you have some who are who I'd call an insular type approach where the advocacy of conservative Muslim practices and protection against blasphemy um, is very important to them. I think this is a small part of the overall concern about um, free speech. Others will have a different view on this. Um, and I think it is is primarily within the older generation of Muslim communities rather than necessarily the younger ones. But it's interesting to note an important part of the overall discussion, and, and it needs to be put first because it's the one that many people talk about. Um, the second is the inconsistencies in the application of free speech, and we'll come to some of those during this discussion. Um, and thirdly, it is the opportunities of expression of uh, of, um, of being to express our faith. So there are many who will say, look, we come from countries where we're not able to, to um, share and to um, add, uh, almost propagate or do da'wah uh, of, of our faith or, or of our sect within our faith. Uh, as, as a Shia Muslim, for example, within many broader Muslim countries, there are sectarian challenges. And in the UK, you have those opportunities to express your faith uh, very differently from, from countries of origin. So that's an important positive that some people will talk about. But I think there's also the idea that free speech is often used as a cover to prevent the tackling of Islamophobia. And, and this is a real challenge, and we'll cover this a lot more going forward. And the final point I want to mention is this power differential. I think this is really urgent uh, and important and, and central to the discussion. You know, free speech often is, is, is perceived, at least by many, to be best for those who have the power to enact their free speech structurally. Either that's through governments or, or the fact that you'll see far-right extremists having very wide platforms. Um, you'll have those who are Islamophobes and racists being given uh, platforms in, in, in national newspapers and on national um, broadcasters. So if you have the, the, the anti-Muslim bigots and hateful people against Muslims with large platforms, and you don't have Muslims with even similar types of platforms, how can that be seen as free speech and, uh, in, in that real way? So I think those are some of the issues that I think many Muslim communities talk about. 
and and I I'd like to add this specific nuance here, which I think is really important, which is that you often and I have to be very careful how I position this, and even the wording on this slide may not be uh, uh, nuanced enough. But there is a difference between a mentality which which is what what some might call an immigrant or grateful mentality that for those who have come into this country and understandably so um from from countries which where they've been uh, where they've had to flee as refugees for example or they've come for, for different other reasons but they see many of the values of this country and see it and are very grateful for, for the opportunity to be able to, to to live their life and live their faith openly um even if it's not uh great but it's still way better than where, where, wherever they came from i think that's one very important uh, approach and i think that's very understandable I'm not coming from that approach, and I, I I don't think that that's the right approach for British Muslim communities as British Muslim communities in this country, because I think really the question here is equal citizens and equal rights, and 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 for that and from that mentality, there's a very different perspective, which is that any inhibition to your ability to to practice your faith equally and openly, um, under the guise of anything, including free speech, uh, has a major impact and needs to be thought of very carefully, and and should not be. We should not come from the perspective of being grateful. We should be coming from a perspective of being equal. Uh, and I think that's important to bear in mind. So now, um, Professor Gold mentioned and, and, and touched on this uh, concept of um, the impact of prevent on free speech. And I just wanted to, to highlight how structural this is. So for those who aren't aware, prevent is a is a strategy by the government. It's one of the four pillars in, in the counterterrorism strategy, uh, the contest strategy, the fourth pillar being uh, one, of, one of the four pillars being prevent, and the idea being that the government wants to prevent people um, being uh, terrorists, and, 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 and that's a relatively broad goal that most of us would agree with. The challenge is that there is this duty that has been implemented, it's called the prevent duty, um, on nurseries, little children, um, schools, universities, uh, local councils and public authorities and public bodies, which means that they have to demonstrate that they are proactively looking and searching for terrorism and those who may end up becoming terrorists in some way. Now, one may think, again, that might be a laudable goal in theory, but in practice, what does that mean? Um, if you, other than the fact that the idea that you should be looking for um, signs of terrorism, radicalization within nurseries is, is, is astonishing, how does this work when it comes to free speech? And what you notice is that Muslims are disproportionately impacted and their ability to engage free speech arguments is totally hindered. And why this is, and I'm going to give some examples here, and then I'm going to explain why I think this is really important when it comes to the free speech discussions. So uh, let, these are just a couple of examples in the last few months. A boy who was 11 years old, just remember, 11 years old, was referred to prevent for wanting to give arms to the oppressed. And um, the teacher thought he was talking about arms, um, as in weapons. Now, other than the fact he's 11 years old and shouldn't be um, uh, uh, referred for, for even talking about um, arms with, with, with weapons to the oppressed, he's an 11-year-old and, 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 and he needs to be thought through. Remember, this is going to be on his record for life that he was referred on to prevent. Um, and what does this mean about the free speech? What does this mean about other Muslims? And, and there have been lots of examples after after what happened in Charlie Hebdo um, in France, these disgusting attacks on, on the magazine. Some children, they, they don't understand the pros and cons, and they sometimes have, have been told, don't talk about these things in your school, because an unnuanced view might lead you to be on prevent and, and impact you for life. Muslims, Muslim children in particular, 
have that real attack against them. A Muslim boy was referred to prevent after he play, uh, after a game of Fortnite, which is a, which is a, obviously a, a very uh, violent related game, but it's a game that's very well known. Why? Because violence in Muslims means terrorism, and we have a very big challenge here. That you have a structural issue here that is that is created this this policy of prevent that might have laudable goals, but its implementation is hugely problematic. And some might argue these are only pro issues when it comes to implementation. Um, in, in, in individual cases, there's always, always going to be exceptions, but that's not the case. There are more than 600 children under the age of six have been flagged by the prevent scheme. Just remember how many of those there are and how many of those are likely to be Muslims. And the, the bottom um, quote we've got here is a quote from Austin. So it's not that this is an implementation error. This is inherently within, the, it's an example of case study within the Austin manual of implementation of prevent. Um, it says, the learner's parents were concerned about this, their son as he had recently shunned his Christian faith and a copy of the Quran had been found hidden in his bedroom. That is seen as a sign of potential radicalization, which needs to be looked at further. And that's what best practice is, according to Austin. On the right hand side, um, the image I've got there is of Nikki Morton, who was education structure many years ago. She, they was trying to say, well, there was a, a website called Educate Against Hate, which tried to say that if someone... Um, one of the signs of radicalization, which was trying to be advice and guidance to schools chosen by the government, one of them was changing your faith and becoming another faith. So the, the presenter on Channel 4 News asked, I take it if a teenager comes home and says they want to be a member of the Church of England, would that be a problem and potentially be something that might lead them to being referred to prevent? And Nikki Morgan responded and said, of course not, because actually what's real is that it's Muslims who are the target here. If you convert to becoming Muslim, that's what matters. And therefore, the actual reality of free speech and conversion, these are all parts of free speech, uh, um, aren't really there. When it comes to UK universities, they've been told to manage their Palestine activism. Why? Because they, because vocal support for Palestine needs to be risk assessed and managed as part of an understanding of what prevent is all about. Um, so you look at all of these things and you realize that the government's engagement on free speech, whilst it lords it and says free speech is most important and very vital, and you'll see front page stories about it, in its implementation, one of its core policies is one that actually inhibits free speech, and they don't seem to care about that massive inconsistency. Now, when it comes to Islamophobia, this is something that really, really, really matters. Um, Muslim communities, poll after poll, shows that Islamophobia is a key concern for Muslim communities. And I'm going to spend a good portion of the next five plus minutes talking specifically about Islamophobia and its impact on Muslim free speech and just generally Islamophobia, because an understanding of this is key when you think about free speech and, and, and what, what matters. So starting off the definition of Islamophobia, Islamophobia, um, the most um, well uh, adopted definition from most Muslim organizations in this country who have, who have um, uh, engaged in the in discussions on, 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 on the definition of Islamophobia. Um, literally, you know, dozens of the biggest Muslim organizations in this country have all signed up to this definition. You can go to islamophobiadefinition.com to see them. And, you, and, and dozens of the top academics who work in the space of racism and, and social geography and other, other similar issues the leads on Islamophobia from Professor Salman Sayyid, Abdul Karim Vakil, others, and, and there are literally dozens of others, have adopted this definition, which says Islamophobia is rooted in racism. And it's a, and most importantly, it's a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. Now, I'd like to spend a minute quickly saying what this means. The idea here is it is a type of racism. It's not racism itself. It's a type of racism. Why? Because racism, if you think about how Islamophobia manifests, 
You see it firstly in terms of negative and social attitudes and, and views about Muslims, and we'll come to some of those in a second. You see it in terms of structural discrimination against Muslims, in terms of the media, in terms of um, and, 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 and politics, uh, and structures and criminal justice and health, etc. And you see it in terms of hate crime. All of those are standard of the key manifestations of Islamophobia in various in various ways. That is exactly how racism is. There is no difference. If you look at anti-black racism, that's about people having negative views and um, social attitudes, the way that they talk about um, Raheem Sterling, for example. You know, that's a negative view, and that's racism. Um, structural discrimination against black people, very clear on the criminal justice system, and, and, and we see in the Windrush examples. And physical attacks against black people, again, very clear. You need to have all those three, and those are the key building blocks of any type of racism. And similarly, of Islamophobia, the only difference is it's a type of racism, but it's not racism that targets black people. It's a racism that targets some form of expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. Because it's, it's the, it's the, if someone is a black Muslim and their blackness is targeted in some way, then it's anti-black racism. If it is their Muslimness which is targeted because of what they wear, because of what they say, because of what they believe, because of whatever reason it is, it's their Muslim angle that's uh, being targeted, then it's clearly Islamophobia. But the, the element of this Islam definition that's really good is it talks about perceived Muslimness. Because the first person who was attacked after 9-11 was a Sikh person because the racist bigot who attacked that person thought he was Muslim even though he wasn't. And so therefore this definition, it's succinct, it's clear, and it links directly to something which everybody understands, which is racism. How does racism manifest? What are the rules when it comes to what should be a, a pris imprisonable offense? What is something that should be tackled through free speech and attacks? That's exactly what racism is. Islamophobia is exactly the same. And therefore it is seen and it is a type of racism. And therefore it's not just hate speech. And I think uh, I disagree with Professor, Professor Gould here. I don't think it's just hate speech. And we shouldn't just restrict Islamophobia to, 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 to the, the hate element. I think we should talk about racism, Islamophobia in the same way as racism, that it's far broader than that. But the action that might have to come on the consequence of that may only be criminal when it comes to hate speech or, or result in, in certain action in some cases when it comes to hate speech. And it may not in other cases, but it's still Islamophobia. And it's very important to think about intersectionality in Islamophobia. And that's why the, the importance of the target being expressions of Muslimness or a black Muslim, can, if it's their Muslimness which is targeted rather than their blackness, then it's, it'd be Islamophobia. And, and the, the fact that this is a racism, everybody understands racism as structural. And that's why I think that some of the critics who say that uh, this definition doesn't take into account the structural nature of Islamophobia have missed the, the word racism. And anybody who, who has looked at racism in any way, looked at the report of the APPG, looked at the MCB report, will know that fundamentally racism is structural and that's therefore very important. So I think that definition is really important and therefore this doesn't impact free speech. There have been many organizations and influencers who have tried to say this impacts free speech and the ability for us to engage in that. That's not the case. So, so just reminding ourselves, that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to flick through this, not through the details. A third of young children in this country think the Muslims are taking over England. This is their, This is what happens when you have the, uh, these real issues about Muslims. You have um, conspiracy theories about Muslims. The Muslims are trying to ban Christmas, Christian festivals like, Christ, Christian, like Christmas or Easter. You have dehumanizing or demonizing stereotypical allegations about Muslims, like that we have sympathy with jihadis, that we're silent on terrorism, that we're pedophile supporters, uh, that, that we're savages. There are there are um, stereotypical allegations like Muslims are liars that keep that we can't trust Muslims because they always use taqiyya. The Muslims are inherently anti-Semitic. The Muslims are vote triggers. The Muslims are invaders. The Muslims need to condemn terrorism, FGM, or or extremism. And remember, um, uh, yeah, 
look at the idea that Muslims need to have loyalty to this country because they're coming in. I mean, these are all things that are there from leaders. And these aren't just random people saying this stuff. These are structural issues. And, and, and when it comes to tackling free speech and, and, and the idea and the concept of freedom, we have to think about the impact of some of those elements when it comes to Muslim communities and the lack of platform to respond. And we'll come to that in, 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 in later on if we get time. Then structural issues. Look, look at the fact that it, it's harder to get a job if your name is Muhammad versus Adam. Um, 50, half of Muslim households are considered to be in poverty versus less than 20% of the overall population. There are structural issues when it comes to Islamophobia in this country. When you look at the media, you see study after study that show that politicians and media fuel hate crime against Muslims. If you look at the stats, the Center for Media Monitoring and Project by the Muslim Council of Britain shows that 60% of articles about Muslims are related to negative behavior. Over, over a third of right-leaning publications, um, articles when it comes to Muslims, are very, very biased, which are really, really negative. And if you look at those headlines, you see the structural issues about how these items come in, not just the, the Sun and the Mail, and the, which you may think, but also or things like the Times. And these are picked up by the far right. Um, and, and, and you see that in politics. 57% of Conservative Party members have a negative attitude towards Muslims. Two-thirds of Conservative Party members um, believe that there are believe conspiracy theories about no-go zones of Muslims. That's also within the Labour Party. You see, um, uh, forty-four percent of um, Muslim members do not believe the Labour Party takes Islamophobia seriously. So you have um, a structural issue when it comes to Islamophobia in this country, in politics, in media, in health, in justice, and you have verbal and physical attacks against Muslims as well. Um, um, Seventy-five percent of Muslim respondents felt that Islamophobia was getting worse. You see people who are who are who, who use a power drill on kneecaps and feet, saying, "We don't like Muslims over here." You know, I effing hate them. This is the reality that you have influential commentators, politicians, think tanks, media outlets, institutions, and structures across society, and ordinary uh, people who are who are perpetrating Islamophobia in different ways. And I think that when we boil this all down, this is my final slide, and I'm I'm coming to this to, to my twenty minutes um, deadline. Um, when you look at the way forward, it is really important to see that when it comes to the issues of free speech, the damage that is being caused and perceived to be caused because of free speech, because what you see is that when people talk about defending free speech in the public space, the biggest driver of that de uh, defense of free speech is often let's defend the racist's ability to be racist towards other people, rather than let's ensure that there is open space for dialogue and debate and discussion in a reasonable way. And, the, and, and when you look and listen to those Muslims who have criticisms of free speech and therefore don't, aren't as big advocates as perhaps one might hope, um, all of us might hope, including myself, we see that the unfairness and the inconsistency of how Muslims are treated, that, Muslim, that free speech is not something that is seen as free when it comes to Muslims. There are huge inconsistencies. Um, and unless and until those inconsistencies are, are fully understood and dealt with, um, the hypocrisy charge that will be drawn to those who are advocates, of, or to many of those, not all of those, to some of those who are advocates of free speech, who will be very vocal on the, on, on the, the willingness to, um, to show cartoons of, of some of, of um, really quite horrific cartoons of the prophet in, 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 as a terrorist or, or c committing quite disgusting um, pedophilic-related um, um, acts in, in, in newspapers are important things to be able to show to young children. When people want to use that as the 
has the 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 way to advocate for free speech and not recognize, not fight for the rights of Muslims when it comes to the uh, the, the unfairness that happens because of prevent because of um, the Islamophobia that's endemic within many sections of society. You're not going to get that support for the, the broad idea. And I know that many elements of the discussions over the last couple of days have been focused on the academic importance of free speech in terms of theoretical uh, application and the, the fact that we all need to, 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 to have that space to, to debate ideas. I would just say that in the implementation and the practical nature of what has happened over the last few years, um, or, or a few decades, um, it makes it very difficult. And in order for us to change that mentality amongst many, who see free speech as a as a hindrance and as an attack on Muslims um, for those for some of those we need to really recognize that we can actually see free speech as an opportunity if it is done in a consistent way. Um, thank you very much.